Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Should I curate or should I create today? Hmm, I can't choose. So how about I do both? This is episode number 41. Welcome to a special episode of the show. I'm glad you've joined me yet again, this time for a solo act. Uh, Now, what could be so important that I had to have you all to myself? Well, it's a little something-something I call experience curating. In fact, this Smart and Simple Matters episode is being published eight days before the public launch of Experience Curating, the book. Oh man, yippee skippy, woot woot, hooty hoo, whatever you want to say, hot diggity, this is exciting. Uh, I understand that you may have no idea what Experience Curating is, or that I was even writing a book, but I assure you that yes, I did write a book. Yes, Experience Curating is worth explaining and listening to. No, I didn't go completely insane in the creation process. And yes, both the experience curating concept and experience curating book may actually have legs out in the wild. I sent out advanced copies of the book in mid-January to a select group of friends and Smart and Simple Matters super fans. And already, oh man, the feedback has been groovy. Uh, Just a couple little snippets. I'm sorry, I can't resist. Uh, For example, Roderick Russell wrote to me after reading the book and he said, I quote, Implementing experience curating is a true working extension of the human brain. Uh, Another fine fella named Amit Amin suggested that a person could banish their poor memory forever if they acted upon the content in experience curating. And Julie Van de Zand said that I was entertaining, confident and convincing, but also humble and open to learning more. (sighs) Let's hope that the general public agrees with Roderick, Amit, and Julie on February 18th, 2014, when I publicly launch Experience Curating. I'm going to be talking about hat tips a lot when I discuss this whole curating dealio. Uh, Hat tip being curator speak for giving credit where credit is due. But I need to give one giant hat tip to someone first, other than my wife, Melinda, who made writing this book possible. That hat tip? It goes to my idea architect and editor for the book, Aaron Currup. As I mentioned in the dedication in the book, Aaron is a good friend of mine. She refuses to let me do anything less than my best work, and she knows how to write some seriously funny comments in the margins of digital files. Uh, Even my mom would have stopped reading after page one without Aaron's masterful job in helping me turn my original 36,000 plus word document of, I got to tell you, mostly crap into an actual valuable book. So thank you, Aaron. Oodles and oodles of thanks. Uh, If you happen to be in front of an electronic device with internet access, now might be a good time to go to valueofsimple.com slash ECB. That's Echo Charlie Bravo. So you can see some details about experience curating. It's definitely not necessary to get the full context for this episode, but it might help. Now, before we get into the core part of the episode, I have a few quick notes for you. First of all, 
I couldn't quite figure out how to balance the desire to tell you everything about experience curating with the need to be concise. There will be an audio version of experience curating soon, but you are not expecting an audiobook length podcast episode from me. So I've actually broken up experience curating into two Smart and Simple Matters episodes. Episode 41, which you're listening to right now, is the first of the two-part series. And next up is episode 42, To Complete Our Co-Curated Journey. I gotta say, this episode and the next one are a little bit longer than usual, but stick with it. They are totally worth it. Trust me on this one. Sometimes people ask me, why is it so hard to be brief when I talk about curating your entire existence? And I tell them it's kind of like I say in the book, because curating is a huge topic, and the depth of an existence is uh, rather huge as well. So combining curating with your existence defies sound bites and snappy takeaways, which is why you need a heaping helping of context for all of this stuff. I almost feel like creating a new podcast just for experience curating because there's so much to talk about, but I won't, at least not for now. Also of note, I am recording this in February 2014, so the tools and tactics I mention in this episode and the next may be slightly or completely outdated if you listen to this months or years into the future. There's really no way around the issue, but I wanted to make sure that I threw that out there. I have trust that you can apply the appropriate context to what you're hearing, whenever it is that you're hearing it. And the last quick note is, I don't know the right way to curate. I just know a way to curate. So liberally supplement this episode's content with uh, some of the prior stuff that I've released in Smart and Simple Matters episodes, like episode 14 with Steve Rosenbaum. Episode number 23 features my curating hero, Robin Good. And episode 35 with Guillaume de Cugis of Scoop It is also a great one. Uh, There is so much awesome curating stuff on the internet, and I'm not going to even come close to touching a mere fraction of it in this episode. I I gotta say, the show notes would blow up if I did, but still, make sure that you check out the show notes. There's gonna be a lot of good links in this one. You can find them at valueofsimple.com slash SASM041. Okay, enough caveats, enough buildup. Let's hit it, shall we? So in this episode, I'm going to cover why I decided to spend nine months writing a book when I don't like writing at all, what in the heck experience curating actually is, a brief history lesson of curating through the centuries, some high-level benefits of experience curating, what you can or should curate, some role models for your curating journey, and best practices of experience curating. In the next episode, number 42, I will cover the rest with a special emphasis on what I call the FOCUS framework. That's an acronym for the experience curating how-to process, and it's F-A-O-C-A-S, pronounced FOCUS. Stands for Filter, Archive, Organize, Contextualize, Access, and Share. I'm also going to explore the tools of the trade in episode 42 and get into Excel, Evernote, library thing, commonplace books. Oh my. But before I go any further, 
I would not be a good curator if I didn't give you some background. Let me share a consolidated version of the origins of experience curating and why I decided to write a book about it. Regular listeners of the show will already know this little fact, but it remains a fact nonetheless. My brain is leaky. Total Swiss cheese there in the gray matter. And did you, were you like me? Did you watch Sesame Street growing up? You remember that character called Forgetful Jones, which would be ironic if you watched Sesame Street and didn't remember Forgetful Jones since he's so darn forgetful. But my mom used to call me Forgetful Jones because I forgot everything all the time and I kind of still do. Uh, Fast forward to 2012, I'm giving you the nutshell version here, folks, but I'm completing the Scott Dinsmore Live Your Legend Goal Setting and Action Workbook like I've been doing annually for years now. And in that workbook in 2012, I committed to something I call put it in a spreadsheet because I am an Excel fanatic. Regular listeners will know that as well. Leaky brain, Excel fanatic, two things to know. Um, Now, when I say put it in a spreadsheet, by it, I mean everything, like seriously everything, recipes, book reviews, online content, quotes, and so on and so forth. After doing what I now refer to as experience curating for about a year and seeing how awesome it was for me, for my memory, my reputation, and the value that I put out into the world, I felt compelled to teach other people the power and the benefits of experience curating with the focus process. And despite my love affair for the spoken word way over the written word, there's still no better way to get your message across an idea spread and writing a book. So it was a strategic play. I wanted to get experience curating into as many hands and as many minds as possible. And I started working on the book's outline back in April 22nd, 2013. I finished the writing, editing, formatting, the feedback, the revision process, and all the other little steps on February 2nd, 2014. Now, before we continue... I feel that it would be appropriate to explain what this experience curating dealio is because the number one question I get from people about the book and the concept is, uh, Joel, what the heck is experience curating? Here's how I describe it. Experience curating is a three-part blueprint that empowers you to see, capture, and share your most valuable moments. Part one develops the mindset that everything can be curated and illustrates the benefits of that. Part two contains the six-step focus framework to make any experience meaningful. And part three teaches how to use various tools and best practices to create actual curating currency, because that's what it's really all about, creating a new form of currency that you can convert into social, intellectual, financial currency whenever you want or need to. Now, that explanation is intentionally loose because I wanted to create something that allowed you to get creative with it. Experience curating is a descriptive paradigm, not a prescriptive one, with few important exceptions, of course, but I do not shout from the mountaintops, here are your experience curating commandments, now do as I say. That's not me, and I want it to be descriptive. To paraphrase, uh, an expert curator, a woman named Beth Cantor, she says that curation isn't simply about collecting and sharing interesting links or Facebook pictures or blog posts. 
Curating is about explaining, illustrating, discussing different viewpoints, and the willingness to change your perspective on a specific event, topic, or issue when new information presents itself. And that's why great curating is defined by purposeful and rich context. Now, I want to give you a little bit of history because curating is all about the context. I'm going to be hammering that word home because it is so very important. All right, I'm now putting on my history professor cap, and here we go. The words curating, curation, curator, all the derivatives, they have their roots in a Latin word called curar, meaning take care. Back in the ancient Roman days, curators were civil servants. They oversaw the empire's bathhouses and aqueducts and sewers. And going forward in history, medieval times, the curatus was a priest dedicated to the preservation or cura of souls. Now, I know a more modern curator's domain is in objects like a museum, a archive, a library, or a gallery. A lot of people imagine artwork or historic mementos, maybe even various collectible items, and they're pretty much on the right track. But whether it's ancient Rome or whether it's the 21st century, there are two curating truths that have remained constant over the centuries. The first one is that the playbook is basically the same. It hasn't really changed, even though the tools to curate have changed drastically. And the second one is that curating empowers the ability to focus, uh, both from a common definition and from the focus framework perspective. But what's recently changed is that curating has a drastically increased importance in a world of endless information, crazy possibilities, and I don't know about you, but sometimes a life that's lived at warp speed. So who, maybe if I can go back a little bit further, has really rocked the curating landscape so that you can get a flavor for people that you might have heard of before, or maybe not. One of them is the Brothers Grimm. Uh, They lived back in 19th century Germany, and those two guys are the primary reason that you have heard of Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, Cinderella, and all these other insanely popular children's folktales. I know that Disney would not have made their billions off of uh, those stories unless the Brothers Grimm curated them in the first place and made sure that they preserved them. Another guy whom I'm a big fan of is Melville Dewey. He is one of curating's greatest heroes and the creator of the Dewey Decimal System. You know that thing with the card catalog at the library that you experienced back in the, well, however old you are, if you're older than about 12 years old. Um, He is just a magician when it comes to curating. And I can't imagine being the person whose curating system lasted more than 140 years and is used still in over 200,000 libraries in 135 countries. That's wild. Um, The Dewey Decimal System, though, it's, it's simple. It's made up of 10 classes divided into 10 divisions, with each division having 10 sections. And the crazy thing is that Dewey replaced... Uh, organizing method that you really can't even call organizing method. Uh, There were systems of libraries where books were stored in buckets, buckets, so that the librarians could easily carry them from a burning building. Does that make any sense? No. 
and Dewey also helped eradicate the practice of organizing books by aesthetics, like grouping them by size, while completely ignoring the title, author, and topic. Does that make sense either? No, I'm really happy that the Dewey Decimal System came along. And then the last guy I want to mention, and there are wonderful women curators too. I'm going to get to them in future episodes and in other comments like Maria Popova, Ariana Huffington, and a whole host more. But another fellow I want to mention is a guy named Henry Luce. He is the co-founder of Time Magazine. And back in 1923, Time, the very first issue, it was a concise curated collection of world news and the only source of its kind. The thing that you got to remember is that uh, back in 1923, no TV, no internet, and radio wasn't even uh, popular back then. The mass adoption of radio came later. And the creation of Time Magazine, it was the very first time in human history that someone succeeded in making recent world events available to the masses. And with that came fame for loose influence and one of the fattest bank accounts in the world. Oh, man, I'm envious of time and I'm envious of Luce. Uh, he single-handedly enlightened almost a billion people over the decades. But you and me, yeah, we come from a little more humble curating origins. And I certainly have not yielded the historical worship like the Brothers Grimm or Melville Dewey or <laughs> nowhere close to the bank account of Henry Luce. My curating origins actually go back to uh, a sports card shop called The Ninth Inning that I used to work at in grade school. Uh, I worked for five bucks an hour making sports card collections to fund my sports card pack habits. God, I had to get the newest pack of baseball or football cards back in those days. But I had this process. I would just grab random stacks of cards from the owner who needed me to do something with them. I'd sort them into various categories and subcategories. I would separate the common ones from the valuable ones, and then I would archive them based on their worth. I even haphazardly putting together a, a very, very crude version of my focus process from random stacks of sports card was valuable. And that's when I first learned how to put on my figurative curator's hat. Uh, or I didn't realize it at the time, but that was my first time when I actually saw what curating could look and feel like and why curating was so useful to somebody other than myself. Now, we're going to be talking more about put it in a spreadsheet, and we'll be talking about Evernote and commonplace books in the next episode and other tools that you can use. But first of all, I want to make sure that you understand a lot of the benefits of experience curating, because that's what it's really all about. You're not going to do this unless you feel that you or everyone else around you is going to benefit. And if you do this in a specific way, you will definitely benefit a tremendous amount. You'll create that curating currency that I was previously referring to, and everyone else around you, they're gonna love you for being a curator. I'm gonna hit some of these benefits a little bit rapid fire, but the main thing is you wanna feel important, right? I know I do. I want other people to think that what I do is important, that why, I exist is meaningful. I need to know that what I do matters. And you probably do as well. Experience curating helps me a ton with that. And I've seen it help a ton of other folks as well. This curating currency that I talk about, it only takes you 0.1% of your time to consolidate the gains from the other 99.9% of your existence. I mean, why even bother trying to put yourself in a position to have all of these amazing experiences if you're not actually going to harness them in some way and do something with them? And 
Some people I know that they curate for emotional and internal benefits. Other people they curate for more practical benefits. Some people like me that you curate for both, or, or just because it's freaking awesome uh, and you want your entire life to benefit. But getting into some of them, the first one, which is a big one, I don't really talk about it a lot on Smart and Simple Matters, but it's still really important. It's self improvement. And one way that that can look is healthier, tastier, and faster meals. Imagine having an Evernote notebook or a commonplace book or a spreadsheet with categories and subcategories of meal types or food ingredients and being able to pick the appropriate one based on who's coming over for dinner, based on the dietary restrictions of a friend that you have, you're baking them something, they just had a baby. All of these different things get a lot easier if you curate all the various recipes or even restaurant experiences that you have because you can drill down with ease through sorting and filtering what the best recipe is and, of course, archive them and organize them as you experience them if you curate. That's a big part of it, too. A second one is simplicity. Uh, I know from experience that our daily activity is much less complex when you are consolidating and organizing resources in carefully selected tools. The ability to instantly access your experiences when, where, and how you need them, it's a little something I call the everywhere doctrine. It just frees you to move around the world more lightly when you have everything digital and you can carry your experiences with you. It's just something that lets us strip away all of life's excess to see what we truly value, kind of like minimalism, kind of like leading an intentional life. It really helps us get more of the good stuff, and curating protects us from a lot of the distractions, just like simplifying your life does. Another groovy part about experience curating is that it has this way of pulling your, quote, right people to you. You know, those kinds of folks where you meet somebody and you just know within a moment or two that they're your kind of people, whether it's in the way that they think, they act, they dress, they believe. I mean, those are the same kind of people that you would actively seek out because you resonate on the same frequencies with them. So instead of actively seeking them out, when you become a curator, all those folks who get you, who are part of your right people, they just effortlessly gravitate to you because they know you are a curator of a specific topic or interest or passion. I have found a ton of my right people in life through curating, and I know a lot of other folks who have. For some people, though, I know that they don't tend to do big projects or take on new concepts unless there's money in it. And I got to tell you, you can make oodles of money curating or helping other people curate. Uh, For example, just look at the billion-dollar business models of Evernote and Flipboard or how the top curators and whatever kind of topics you like are rewarded. You probably haven't even thought about it, that Evernote and Flipboard are curating platforms, but they are, and they are worth so much money, and even individual curators within their niche or niches, if they have multiple, they can make a ton of bank. You know another extremely underrated benefit of experience curating? It's avoiding a filter bubble. Yeah, that filter bubble, the thing that's right behind you, (gasps) look out, filter bubble. I'm 
half joking, but uh, filter bubble is, at least according to me, it's this place where you end up when an algorithm determines what to show you based on data like your location, um, what you previously clicked on, search history, or the commercial interest of the algorithm's creator. And that kind of thing results in a self-reinforcing echo chamber, and it isolates you. That's the thing. It isolates you from information different from what you've already been exposed to. Eli Pariser examines this filter bubble concept, and it's where I got the term from in a great TED Talk. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. But there's companies like Facebook and Google that may have you in a filter bubble right now, and I want to incentivize you to rely more on human curators and less on these biased Google searches, uh, counterproductive Facebook algorithms that show you crap that you don't want to see, but don't show you the awesome thing that just happened in your friend's life because they thought it's not relevant to you. Um, all these other forces that are keeping a lot of people in these filter bubbles, oftentimes on purpose and for profit. I just find it a lot more empowering to choose curators over U.S. News and World Report proprietary rankings, the kinds of things that you let people decide where you live, what you eat, who you trust, what you can ultimately become, and each great curator that you attach yourself to, or if you can become one yourself, it's one more way to avoid the filter bubble. So just to give you a quick recap, we've got experience curating helping with self-improvement, simplicity, self-expression, finding your right people to potentially make oodles of money and to avoid those scary filter bubbles. Okay, now for all of you left brain analytical people out there, like me, who you like the numbers, I just want to mention a few things too. This will put more of this in context. Now, I use experience curating to filter what would otherwise be an overwhelming amount of information, both online and offline. I'm going to throw some stuff at you right here, and I'm going to link to this stuff in the show notes too. There's a domo.com infographic. Now, this is as of almost two years ago, in June 2012, and it said that there are over 200 million emails, 48 hours of YouTube videos, and almost 700 Facebook updates every second. Think about that for a moment. And while you're thinking about that, there's another MBAonline.com infographic that I saw that said there are 288 billion emails, billions of new pictures on Instagram or other places. There's a billion Facebook updates and hundreds of millions of blog posts every day on the internet. That kind of stuff is just nuts. It boggles the mind. And you think to yourself, how could I possibly tap into all of that? Well, when you learn how to filter and you use tools to filter your experiences properly, it's not that difficult to do that. Um, I even mentioned some more research in my Ignite Minneapolis talk on experience curating back in May 2013. And I mentioned that in other places too. There's this fascinating research that was done by Roger Bond and James Short at the University of California in San Diego. They work at a place called the Global Information Industry Center, and the research was called How Much Information. Now, this is even back in 2009. We're five years later, and the research, the primary takeaway that I took out of it said that we are exposed to over 100,000 words every day. 100,000 words every day. And that's 12 hours worth of words daily from advertisements, from conversations with friends, from what we see on the internet. 
that, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to use that to benefit us and everyone else around us? Or are we just going to be have that passively wash over us and not actually do anything with it? A lot of people I see just shut down because they can't handle the amount of information, the amount of experiences, the amount of potential that is out there for them. And what happens as a result of this deluge of information that's bombarding us nonstop from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep is some people, they have this fear of missing out and it's debilitating. It's, it's terrible. I've seen other people just get paralyzed because there are too many choices. What should I do? The possibilities seem endless. And then you go with a lack of focus and you start feeling like you need to be by your source of information. You get this glowing screen withdrawal as I talk about it. You lose a sense of time. Uh, I have suffered from this back in my video game addictions. I became a sleep-deprived zombie when I relied on information and the internet too heavily. Uh, I sat way too much. I exercised far too little. I abandoned real-world relationships for virtual ones. I neglected a lot of my responsibilities. And the thing is, the risk of not curating have increased as the spread of digital devices proliferates, the growth of media creation just explodes, and there's all of these experiences that are being shared over email, over social media, over all these different places. Um, you know, Steve Rosenbaum, who I've mentioned already, he talks about our human need for understanding, which from an evolutionary perspective has done us really well over the years, but now the, the desire to have new information, it works against us when we're swimming in the internet's ocean. Um, it affects family, productivity, sleep, and sanity. And the thing is, these algorithmic filters, whether you're in a filter bubble or not, smarter search, all those things are great, but they're not going to come to the rescue for you. Trusted curators as your guides will help, and becoming a curator yourself is going to help. Uh, you know, I could rattle off more benefits, more stats, but to me, it really comes down to this. And for most people, this is where they just take a step back and they say, whoa, whoa, Joel, hold on. That's kind of nuts, buddy. And I know this may sound a little bit crazy, but I truly believe this. You have a moral imperative to curate. A moral imperative to curate. Because when you don't, you deprive yourself, your family, your friends, your communities, and the world of all of the wonderful experiences that you have already had and that you will continue to have. You are involved in so much awesome stuff. And when you don't share it, when you don't curate it, you're doing yourself and all of us a disservice by not curating. Ram Dev has this great quote, which I tell people all the time. And in that quote, he says, wealth of any type, just as love must be shared to be fully realized. Let us access your curated stash. All of the treasures that you may be hiding away, share them selectively and appropriately with relevance and significance with everyone else and watch your curating currency skyrocket. We need you to curate your existence, even if it's just a tiny little portion of it. You truly have a moral imperative to curate, and I believe that goes for every single one of us on this earth. 
All right, I know that was pretty heavy stuff. Let's shift into something a little bit lighter. We can be a little bit more playful with it uh, because after I give people all of this curating context that I've just laid on top of you, this is where a lot of them say, uh, hey, Zeslovsky, you know, this sounds great and all, but I can never see myself curating. You know what I tell them? I say, so did you know that you are already curating? Like, you've already curated today, today as in like right now. Maybe you don't even know how or when, but you did because we all curate every single day, whether that's with Pinterest pins or journal recaps of a friendly conversation. Maybe you're reading and sharing your RSS feed contents. These are all versions of curating, even though some of them have more sophistication or are more intentional than others. So really the question isn't, should I curate? You're already doing that. The question is, what should I be curating? And for some folks, the answer is as easily as they just rattle off their interests or whatever their goals are, their passions, their areas of expertise. But in experience curating, it's really difficult because if any experience can be powerful, and in the right context, it can with the right people, then all experiences are potentially worth curating. Now, I'm not a big fan of rules of thumbs, but... Uh, Here's one for you about what to curate. I treat curating kind of like I treat organizing. So I tell myself, first, do what's necessary and valuable, then expand into what is fun and possible. And here's another little tip. Who you're curating for is going to heavily impact what you end up curating. I give this example in the book, but curating on behalf of a political or an environmental, maybe even a religious cause is going to look really, really different than curating on a topic just for your personal benefit. But you know what I tell people? Curate whatever the heck you like. I won't judge you if you won't judge me curating YouTube videos of the double rainbow guy, or uh, this one's hilarious. I should really link to this in the show notes. I'm a big New York Mets fan. Uh, they had an employee who used to butt dial famous athletes. There's a hilarious article in the Wall Street Journal of all places about how he does this. Great stuff. These are the kinds of things that I curate on top of, of course, the meaning of life, simplicity, minimalism, personal finance, politics, sports, all categories that I do. And even within them, there's a whole bunch of subcategories. If you still don't know what to curate, though, think about what problems that you enjoy helping other people solve. Maybe what kind of personal challenges just really get you revved up and make you want to spread that fired up feeling to other people? What kind of topics are you fascinated by that for whatever reason, nobody else seems to discuss? And you can think about what unique knowledge you possess that others would pay you for. Because there's a decent chance that somebody will pay you for your curated experiences if you package them in the right way. As long as you're spending a lot more time living and experiencing than curating, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. I can't tell you who to sock it to. We just need you to pick something. Please. Now, you may not know instantaneously what you want to curate. And that's cool. You have some time to figure it out if you don't already know what it is. But if you need some curating role models besides me, I hope, I've put together a short list 
of people and an organization that have made it so far into what I call the Experience Curating Hall of Fame, or ECHOF, as you might hear me refer to the acronym E-C-H-O-F. And I got to tell you, folks, a lot of Experience Curating Best Practice boxes need to be checked in order to receive the honor. So first up, and again, there's going to be links to all these people and their primary places that they hang out online in the show notes. But first up is my curator of choice, Robin Good of Master New Media. I actually refer to him as the curator's curator. Kind of like you can be a man's man, you can be a curator's curator. And he is that for me. I, he covers it all. Within his niches, of course, educational, digital tools, content marketing, he is just constantly out there seeking out and being sought to analyze and assess the best resources for online curating, and he really covers it all. I will link to the Newsmaster Toolkit so that you can see what I mean, but he has really shaped a lot of the experience curating best practices that you'll read about in the book like never compromising on the quality of your sharing and curating like your reputation is on the line. Very fine curator right there, Mr. Robin Good. Next up is Maria Popova, who is very well known by people even outside of curating circles. She has a very popular website called brainpickings.org and she's really a curator of everything. I mean, One day, she's going to go through a book about some crazy person or event that you've never heard of before, but she's going to make it relevant to you because she's taking the original context and she's layering on her personal context in ways that very few people can do. There's really nobody, well, few people at least, that are better in my mind than Maria Popova at combining someone else's experiences with her own. It doesn't matter what the topic is, what the medium is, what the platform is. She just defies uh, typical norms about what you can curate by curating everything. And if you're like me, who's a multi-potentialite, somebody who refuses to choose a thing, a topic, a niche, a medium, you will love Maria Popova of brainpickings.org. Now, we have a guy named Steve Rosenbaum, who has also been on Smart and Simple Matters, along with Robin Good. Uh, I have dubbed him the nemesis of meaningless video. He's an awesome storyteller and he has, well, I'll let you listen to the episode which I referred to uh, at the start of the show and which will be in the show notes. But currently his uh, main thing is his company magnified.net which is used by TEDx.com to filter and organize over their 30,000 plus videos. They have them categorized by location, language, topic, all because they use Magnify's technology. Uh, He is a fine, fine curator, and he wrote a really good book about curation as well. It's called Curation Nation, which I've read and reviewed, and it solidifies his Ekhoff credentials. Now, last up is not a person, but actually a group of people that make up the Digital Curation Center in the UK. In my mind, they are champions of curating science and academia, although they do have a rather technical slant to them. Um, They've been pioneering, though, in teaching curation skills and illustrating the benefits for almost a decade now. And they've got these awesome how-to guides and online resources, case studies scattered all throughout their website. 
I would just encourage you, don't be scared off by some of the terminology that they use. You could easily replace some of the things that they talk about. They talk about databases and information. Well, we talk about spreadsheets and experiences. Really, they're the same thing. Uh, And if you like experience curating, then you're probably going to get a fair amount out of the Digital Curation Center. So those are four of a growing list of Experience Curating Hall of Fame. Track those folks down and the Digital Curation Center as well if you want to learn a little bit more about how you might do it and what topics to curate. So... Would you like to know how you can check some experience curating best practice boxes? Well, we're going to cover some of them, but not in too much depth. This could easily be its own episode on best practices. Heck, I could probably have two episodes on it, but I will not go super deep. Consider this your overview. The first thing I want to talk about is curating frequency. And there are a lot of people who ask me, Joel, how much time should curating take? How often should I do it? And each time they ask, I tell them, well, it depends. It depends on whether you're consuming a whole bunch of uh, content or experiences that you could then do something with, or maybe you rarely read. Maybe you're just in your own environment a lot by yourself. Either one's okay, but it depends on how much you are experiencing. Personally, I really like to curate an experience that's meaningful immediately, even when there's some tricky environmental or social barrier uh, because of my leaky brain. And I also know that science has shown that people, even with the best memories, forget the key parts of an experience or misremember them really, really fast after it's happened. So yeah, like I said, social barriers, practical barriers, environmental barriers often prevent quick curating. Do your best and do it as frequently as you can. Remember this, perfect is the enemy of memory, and it's also the enemy of good enough. The next thing I want to hit on is curating jam sessions. So I have these 30-minute jam sessions that I do periodically where everything that I've already archived, I'm going to go through them to make sure that they are still relevant, they are still accurate, because I don't want to have somebody tell me, "Uh, dude, that link that you just forwarded me, yeah, it's been broken for two years. That's kind of embarrassing. Now, to cultivate the curating habit, I recommend that you block off a chunk each day or week or monthly, however often you want to do a curating jam session, although I recommend monthly or more frequent, because what gets scheduled gets done, right? This is like anything else in life. If you just randomly decide, I'll do it someday, someday never comes. So just creating that small habit to keep your archive rich and well-fed is definitely necessary. Some things that I do when I have these curating jam sessions, I will prune experiences, If things aren't worth preserving or there are certain parts of them where the context has changed, I'll make sure that I am removing. I will check for broken links or redirected website links in my spreadsheet. There is some great software like W3C Link Checker or another one called Link Checker that really speeds up the process. There's a whole bunch of things that I'll do, but the main thing is you just need to figure out your ideal curating jam session frequency, length, focus. Your goals are different than mine, so you'll have to figure those out as well. Your process is going to look different based on the tool and topic and medium, but it's really important to do these jam sessions. You know what else is kind of huge when you're curating? Attention to detail. 
Now, I'm the kind of dude who does a lot more work up front so I can do a lot less work over time. And that means I'll do a service level review after I put something in one of my spreadsheets to make sure that spell check is appropriate, um, text spacing, font settings, the formatting of text if I've copied and pasted something, removing funky special characters. These are all good things to do at the moment that you're curating and having that level of attention to detail. Um, I'll also review what I just archived for clarity and brevity. Whatever else happens to be important to you, you should do that as well. Because the odds are that you're never going to update that experience once it hits your archive. So you gotta make it count the first time around. And when you do that, you're really giving respect to experiences and the people who are involved in them and the situation in which they belong by giving it the level of detail that they deserve. Okay, I got another one for you. It's backing up your experiences. Now, easier said than done if you are using a physical tool like a bullet journal or a commonplace book. Most of this is not going to apply to you. Uh, But if you want to show those experiences some love, then you will protect them by backing them up. Uh, You can do that with Dropbox and Google Drive. Uh, You can do it with an external hard drive, which I do every 14 days or so. I plug in my external hard drive and make sure that outside of the cloud that I've got my experiences locally if I need them. And some people will go to this extra step. I don't personally, but if you want to put your experiences on a thumb drive or a disc like a DVD or a Blu-ray and then put it in a safe deposit box or hide it at your friend's house, um, that again, is another step in the process. But making sure that your experiences exist in multiple places without having version control issues, a topic for another day, is a big-time experience curating best practice. So to recap the best practices so far, we've got curating frequency, curating jam sessions, attention to detail, and backup. This next one, huge. Huge, 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 and it is curating in an ethical way. There's so many different things to say on this one, but one of the main points that I make in the book is that other people's livelihood, whether it's financial or intellectual or some other kind of livelihood, is going to be at risk if we all don't curate in an ethical way. That's actually the premise of Maria Popova and Tina Roth's Curator Code, and I stand behind it completely. So here's what I mean. I'm going to paraphrase some excerpts from the book in this part. Imagine you are a photographer, and you license your pictures to pay for your family's needs. So anyone who finds one of your pictures floating around online, and they use it without attribution because it wasn't attributed to you in the first place, Uh, Even if they're using it for non-commercial purposes, if you have that content copyrighted, they're effectively stealing from you. And you are doubly insulted because you have no way to know when that's happening because nobody is attributing back to you. And that's just one of many reasons why uh, strict, very ethical curating is going to help you and help others sleep well, avoid legal problems. I've seen legal issues with curating. It's a real thing. Uh, Make sure that you're respecting others, and it's going to help you preserve your reputation. Another part of ethical curation, and this one's a little bit controversial, but uh, I like to think of curating as something that people primarily do for non-financial reasons. You can make money off of curating, and that's great. I might make a little bit of money off my book and some other ways, but I'm transparent about it. 
If anything that I've curated links that could generate advertising income or affiliate sponsorship or other types of income, I'm going to be upfront about that. Uh, Intellectual theft, whether it's accidental or not, to sell more of what you offer or what somebody else offers, it just hurts everybody. And one of my favorite sayings is uh, by this woman named Jody Eitenberg of LegalNomads.com. She said, trust is trendy, but it never goes out of style. That's totally true with curating. If you blow it once, there's a good chance that people are not going to give you another shot. So be more concerned with outcome than income when you're curating. Hat tip to Joshua Fields Milburn of The Minimalist for that phrase. Also, as an experienced curator, you're going to need to understand copyright and fair use, creative commons, licenses, and ideas I know it's super boring. Who wants to spend any time on Wikipedia learning about copyright and creative commons and all that kind of stuff? But it's extremely important. Like I said, Wikipedia is a good place to start learning about these things. But a serious experienced curator is going to explore other resources and make sure that it's contextual, that based on their country and their environment, that they are curating in an ethical way based on how that experience is, if it is, uh, copyright or is supposed to be used. I'm actually going to save the rest of the ethics-related best practices for some other time because I want to make sure that I hit this next one and the next few before I wrap up the episode. This next one is what I call, when in doubt, don't. Uh, When you feel even the slightest discomfort or yuckiness before you archive or share an experience, just don't act on that impulse. I give the example that uh, my wife and I, Melinda, we were in Japan on a trip in 2009, and there were two phenomenal places in Kyoto where we wanted to take pictures, but they didn't allow photos, and I was really, really tempted to ignore those no camera signs that were posted all over the place, but I would have regretted taking those pictures, and I would have regretted sharing those pictures even more if I did, so I didn't take any. So basically, when in doubt don't. It's not worth it. This next best practice, though, was inspired by Steve Rosenbaum, and he states that you should be both a curator and a creator. Uh, That philosophy is summed up nicely in this quote from him. I'm going to just quote him for a second. Steve says, be part of the content ecosystem, not just a repackager of it. Often, people think of themselves as either creators or curators as if those two things are mutually exclusive. The most successful curators embrace the three-legged stool philosophy of creating, inviting visitors to contribute, and gathering links and articles from the web. What he's basically trying to say is that creating gives you a bigger picture of the world. And as I say in the book, sorry, I keep repeating that over and over again, uh, the bigger the picture the richer, the curator. My last best practice comes courtesy of my simple living philosophy. I call it live to live, not to curate. Curating is awesome. Uh, Using the past for your future benefit and for the benefit of everyone else is a phenomenal thing, but never dwell on the past or fixate on the future so much that you forget why you do what you do or that why you're waking up every single morning. I want you to be grateful and content with right now. And if you ever find yourself thinking that you're doing too much curating and not enough living, that the balance is tipped too heavily towards the curating side, just stop. 
whatever you got to do to center yourself and remember to be present in the moment, that is important. We don't live to curate. We live to live. Now, to recap those best practices, I talked about curating frequency and the challenges that you may have deciding where and when to do that. I then talked about curating jam sessions to keep your experiences as fresh as the spring breeze. I mentioned big time attention to detail when you're archiving your experiences. Also talked about backing up your experiences or making your physical physical experiences digital, if that's possible, to show them a little bit of love. Having unshakable curating ethics through attribution and pristine motives and selective capturing and sharing, that is huge as well. And then I want people to be a curator and a creator. You can do both, and it's really groovy if you do both, if I say so myself. Last, live to live, not to curate. Experience curating, it's a way of life, but it doesn't replace living your life. I will promise you one thing, though. Your mindset is going to shift when you embrace experience curating. And if you practice it long enough, experience curating is going to stop being something that you just do and it will become part of who you are. It's going to be part of your identity. And that's a super cool thing when that happens. This curating dealio, it's a fascinating topic and people want to talk about it with you if they understand its context, and you might have to provide it to them. To help you out with that, I'm going to have in the show notes a couple of links. The show notes, again, are at valueofsimple.com slash SASM041. The first link is to a quick three-minute video with a whole bunch of prominent curators talking about what it is. It's beautiful, and it's also poignant. The second one is Robin Good has this page on Bundler where he has all these different definitions of content curation, but those content curation definitions can be applied to the broader sense of curating quite easily. This curating thing, though, it's really a gift. It's something that you get to do. It's not something that you have to do. I realized that right away, and it put it in a whole new light, and I really love it that way. The real sacrifice I found is in not curating, and giving up its huge potential for you and then for everybody else around you. The missed opportunities of a non-curated life, they're just so big. You can't even calculate them. And I wouldn't want to risk it. So there you go. That was part one of two in the Smart and Simple Matters Experience Curating Coverage. I talked about in this episode why I wrote the book, what experience curating is, gave you a little curating history lesson, hit many of the benefits of experience curating. I discussed what you can or should curate, highlighted some role models for your curating journey, and examined some best practices of experience curating. In the next episode, I'm going to cover the focus framework and dive into the tools of the trade, like Evernote, library thing, commonplace books, and hey, let's not forget about Excel. If you didn't already get more details about experience curating on the web, now would be a great time to do it. All you got to do is go to valueofsimple.com slash ECB, Echo Charlie Bravo, and check out experience curating grooviness. It's all right there for you. There's a couple other links that may be useful to you. The first is to the Smart and Simple Matters iTunes listing, where you can leave a review of the show or explore past episodes, and that is at valueofsimple.com slash 
iTunes. The other link is to the show notes on Value of Simple, which are bigger, better, stronger, faster, and richer than any previous Smart and Simple Matters show notes. To get that good stuff, head on over to valueofsimple.com slash SASM041. Okay, that was a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the show, my friend. I'm super grateful for your time, for your attention, and even if you never curate from this day forward, I still appreciate you. As always, you can catch me on social media with an email to joel at valueofsimple.com through a voicemail on Value of Simple or other places I hang out online. There's a lot of them these days. If you have read Experience Curating already, feel free to leave me a candid review on Amazon, Library Thing, Goodreads, your blog, anywhere for that matter. I really dig that. Now, I will say this. Go get your curating groove on before, during, or after you visit valuesimple.com slash ECB. It is time for your partner in simplifying to sign off once again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zislavsky, creator of all things value of simple.